Good morning, church family. Why don't you stand, grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Hebrews. That is on page 1001 in the Black Bibles around the room. I'll be reading Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 in the New Testament. And when I finish, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And your response is going to be, thanks be to God. Because at this church, we believe this is the inspired word of our God. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning. Thank you for showing us yourself through Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for making the purification for sin for us. And thank you, Holy Spirit, <clears throat> for living in our hearts. Father, open our minds and our hearts to hear Pastor Mark reveal your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Right on. It's a great day. I'm so excited. We're in the book of Hebrews. Uh, but before we get into this text, let me just mention that for the leaders launch, that last day for applications is tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow is February 24th, and that gives you a little bit of runway before March 9th to read the material and get ready for the first class. And so let me just say that the leader launch, if you're like, well, I'm not sure. Am I a leader or I want to be a leader? The, don't, don't be deceived. The leader's launch is about influence. Leadership is influence. All of us have influence in some portion of our life. Um, and that could be from stay-at-home mom to in a job or in, you know, part of ministry or um, a specific role of leadership in the church. Um, but here, the whole point of leader launch is for us to go, what, do we, what would we want every attender, member um, of Livingstone Sparks, what would we want them to know? What would we want every, every person who calls this church home to be and to be able to do? And that's leaders lunch. And that's just replicating ourselves and, and uh, being leaders who make leaders, disciples who make disciples, and, and being, uh, and, and being a, an efficient or being effective in the influence that God has given us and being ready for greater influence if God were to give it to you. And so I would encourage you, it's for everybody. It doesn't matter age. It's for everybody. Uh, sign up. Get in there. The application ends tomorrow, and, um, and you'll be receiving those acceptance letters this week, and then you'll, you'll have your material you'll be working on. So just wanted to make sure we clarify, because this is a brand new thing we're doing, and I would encourage all of you to participate. And so um, check that out, and you can check that out, like I said, under signups online. Um, okay, the, the book of Hebrews. I am so excited <laughs> for this book. I've spent a large part of my life... Um, studying the book of Hebrews. I got to study with one of the, the world's best Hebrew, book of Hebrews scholar. Um, I did my master's and emphasized and, and have written uh, and have shared that work and um, all in the book of Hebrews. I've spent so much of my educational life in the book of Hebrews and I've never been able to teach it. Never. And, I, and even though you know, I planted a church, I've 
preached, I don't know, some six or seven hundred sermons. And, and every one of those, I wanted to preach Hebrews. And it was almost just like God's like, wait, not now. Or the church was in a different season and we needed to do some things. But I've, I've, in between every series for the last 11 years, I've been like, Lord, can I teach Hebrews? And he's like, uh-uh, you know. And, and then... I show up here in October, and our, one of our very first projects as family elders of all the Livingstone churches is, hey, we're going to teach you the book of Hebrews. How should we do it? And I'm like, you know, and, uh, and I'm excited. And here we are. And, and so um, I'm excited because I've wanted to preach this. This book has meant so much to me. It is, it, is, it is the book of Hebrews that led me to plant a church. It is the book of Hebrews that caused me to fall in love with Jesus. It is the book of Hebrews that, that keeps me passionate about the gospel and, uh, and all the nuances of the gospel. I love this book. And, and one of the things I'm really excited about it is, even though I've spent a lot of personal time, there's a difference. Like if you enjoy something, you know that when you get to bring others into it, it gets that much more enjoyable, but for a different reason, you know? It's like, okay, well, the Dumbo ride is cool, but if you have kids or nieces or nephews, you're like, two hours for the Dumbo ride to do this, you know? That's fun stuff. And all of a sudden you enjoy it differently, because you're with somebody or you're bringing somebody along into the things that you really like. That's how I feel about this book. I mean, I love it, and I'm going to preach it with a smile on my face. I'm going to get really excited about it. But one of the things I'm really excited about is bringing you with me and bringing you into this journey and this love and, and desire for this book and what it's producing in me. And I've been praying that God does that in us and across the board in all of our Livingstones churches. Um, and it is going to be amazing. And we're preaching 37 sermons in the book of Hebrews. We could preach 3,700 sermons uh, in the book of Hebrews. And uh, wanted, you know, we, we went back and forth of do we do 10 months or keep it in this year or do two years? I mean, we could spend forever. Even as I was preparing this series uh, for, uh, for, for the church's just development, I was like, I've never seen that before. I've spent a long amount, a lot amount of time in this book, and I'm still finding new connections, new things. Just, and that's the great thing is you could spend a lifetime and not ring it out. That's what's great about God's word in general. Every book, every one of that could do it, but Hebrews is a special book. Um, so let's let's talk. I want to give you like a, a flyover, and uh, and we have a lot to get through. And you know, I need to get you out so you can sign up for leader launch. So um, so let me do a couple things. I just want to. Share a little bit, like, what do you need to know about Hebrews in order to, to really understand what's going on? There's, there's a couple things. One, uh, the book of Hebrews uh, is not a book or a letter. I know I say the book of Hebrews, but that's because we're referring to it written down here in our Bible. The book of Hebrews was originally a sermon. It was preached. It was about a 45-minute sermon, and we're going to take a year. <laughs> we could just read it, say amen, and go to lunch, right? It's a good sermon. It's maybe the most complete sermon in all of the Bible. It is the most robust sermon in all of the Bible. But it was preached, and there's a preacher, and then that preacher wrote it down, or somebody wrote it down for that preacher, and then it was sent out to the early churches uh, just before 70 AD. And we'll talk a little bit more about the audience. But it's a sermon, it's a great sermon. That may be one of the reasons why I really love it, because this is what I do, you know? And uh, so I'm really fond of this, because it preaches. Do you know the book of Hebrews is a six-point sermon? 
Now, that wouldn't fly these days because we do three-point sermons, right? Like that's, it's like, oh, if there's more than three points, that's not a sermon, right? Uh, it's a six-point sermon. And we've broken up the book over this next year in six mini-series, as you will see. You've seen in the artwork that there's these boxes, and these boxes represent kind of an Old Testament shadow and then how it gets revealed in Jesus. And we're going to do that six times. And it's going to reveal kind of the six major points of the book of Hebrews. It's an amazing, an amazing sermon. Now, we don't know, we don't know with 100% certainty who preached this book. I, I have a pretty good guess, but it's not the only guess. There's lots of options. Um, but what, here's what we do know about the person who preached this sermon. One, we know that they were a Jew. And that's really important, especially to the audience. And we'll come back to that. We also know that the person who preached the book of Hebrews was a second generation Christian. Here's what that means. Uh, You might remember Acts chapter 2 when the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to preach the gospel after Jesus ascended to heaven. Do you remember that? That was the first generation of of making disciples or, or the gospel going out. The person who preached Hebrews is the second generation. He was led to Jesus by the people who were led to Jesus by the apostles at Pentecost. And so you could already see there's a disciples making disciples theme right in the scriptures. But the person who preached Hebrews was a second generation Christian. And, um, and that's, that's important too, because it means he, he has an idea of what it's like, not at the ground floor, but what it's like to meet Jesus as the movement was, um, was carrying forward. Thirdly, here's what we know about the preacher of Hebrews. He was very educated. In fact, the book of Hebrews is on par uh, in terms of the Greek, uh, almost with no other New Testament book. Luke is pretty good, but Luke was a doctor, highly educated. So his Greek was very, very good. Hebrews, the, the, the preacher of Hebrews who, who wrote the sermon, his Greek is very, very good, which tells us he was highly educated. Um, if you look at Paul, some people think Paul preached Hebrews. That can't be, because uh, Paul, uh, Paul is a... Kind of just terrible at Greek. He just is, right? He wrote a lot of run-on sentences, really bad at grammar, uh, just kind of carried himself. And Paul's letters look nothing like the book of Hebrews if you were to read it in Greek. But, but the book of Hebrews tells us that the preacher, the author, um, was highly educated, especially educated in the Old Testament. Because when you're looking through this book, it's all these Old Testament images and how they're translated through Jesus. And we'll get to that more. But, but, but here's my best guess. My best guess is that the preacher of the book of Hebrews was Apollos. Isn't that cool? And you might be a Christian for a long time and you're looking through the New Testament. You're like, man, I, I think I know everybody who's, who's written or, or uh, who wrote a letter or a book in the Bible. But with Hebrews, best guess is Apollos. Let me give you an idea, and you can find this in the Bible. Acts chapter 18, 24 through 25, listen to the description of Apollos. A Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria. What's important about that is Alexandria was the Harvard of the world of that time. Uh, You had um, some of the the best philosophers in education coming out of Alexandria. We'll come back to that in a little bit. But Apollos was from Alexandria, came to Ephesus, He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in spirit. He spoke, preached, and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew at that point the baptism of John. 
And if you look in the scriptures, who the author needs to be, who the preacher needs to be, Apollos is a really good match. And I think that's amazing. One of the things I love about that is Apollos didn't put his name in there. He, he, he didn't care about being known. Wasn't that great? It's not like he, he didn't bank whether or not we should listen to this because he was somebody we should listen to, but because God is somebody we should listen to. And I love that. I love the humility of this man, not to put himself in, in uh, this letter slash sermon slash book uh, anywhere. So um, that's our best guess, Apollos, and I think that's pretty fantastic. And when you go back through the, through the scriptures, you can see Apollos was discipled by Priscilla and Aquila, came to Christ as a second-generation Christian, plus all these things that we just mentioned, uh, plus the education level, plus the understanding of the Old Testament, which brings us to the audience of the book of Hebrews. The audience of the book of Hebrews are the Hellenistic Jews in Italy. Italy, woo, you know, it's a fancy book. And so the Hellenistic Jews in Italy, this also shows part of the scattering. Acts chapter 6, suffering came to, to Jerusalem, and then the Christians began to scatter all over the Greco-Roman world. And a lot of Christians scattered far enough away into Italy. And then what happens when you have people that are scattering, all of a sudden you have a need for the explanation and the understanding of how do we live for Jesus in this particular culture and in this particular time. And that's why being Hellenistic was important. The word Hellenistic just means that they were Jewish people with Jewish historical roots of the Old Testament, but they had adopted a certain amount of Greek culture. They were Jews who spoke Greek and they, they lived and breathed and interacted and worked in a Greek world with Greek, under, like Greek symbols and the, and the whole thing. It, it means that, they, that if they weren't Christians, they were very pluralistic in the way that they thought about religion. They adopted a lot of the very kind of pantheistic uh, way that Greek culture and Greek religion and philosophy works. And so you get an idea that these are somewhat very culturally driven Jews of the Old Testament trying to make sense of their roots and their culture, but in a very, very hostile world. When you are in the book of Hebrews, I want, I want you to keep in mind that the, some of the most severe persecution to the church and to God's people in the first century came out of Rome and into Italy. Nero was the, was the emperor at this time, and we know ultimately uh, Nero lit the whole thing on fire, killed lots of Christians, and that these people that this preacher is speaking to are people that are either trying to figure out whether they want Jesus or they've already trusted in Jesus, but they're wrestling with the suffering. Is Jesus worth it at all? That's the real question. Now, what's the point? What's the broad point of the of the Sermon of Hebrews. The broad point is to bring out of the shadows of their past and their Greek culture, Jesus. Now, I want you to think about, it. you know, like uh, if you um, are going to be a parent, you get an ultrasound. Um, and when you look at an ultrasound, if you're the parent, you think that that little gummy bear slash duck, or whatever it looks like in that ultrasound picture looks just like you. You know, you're like, you're showing everybody, you're like, look at, look at our baby. And all of us are like, yeah, okay. Yeah. And when, when we got ultrasounds of our kids, I remember one, uh, it was our daughter, she looked like a duck, right? 
And I remember saying, Christy, like, I was a first-time parent. I don't know how this was going to go. But I'm looking at the social, and I'm like, I think she's a duck. What is, I think she has a bill. What's going on? And I was like, kind of like, oh, my gosh, she's going to come out looking like a duck, you know. And, and the ultrasound is just a shadow. And then she comes out, and she's beautiful, and she's perfect. And she doesn't have a duck bill, by the way, right? But, but that's because an ultrasound is just this outline. It's just a picture. It's very faded. It's hard, to under, it's hard to know. And sometimes you can point out some features. I think parents in their excitement kind of like, they have your ears. Are those even ears? We don't even know, right? And so we're looking at an old, that's the Old Testament. The Old Testament's an ultrasound, right? And it's just a, it's just a kind of cloudy picture of the thing that would be born. And, the, and you look at the ultrasound, and you're like, I think there's Jesus there. I think there's something makes sense here. I think this is going to birth something beautiful, but I can't really tell. And the whole point of the book of Hebrews is to show you how Jesus, the, the, the beautiful son of God, gets birthed out of this ultrasound of the Old Testament. That's the whole point. And the thing is, is all of our culture and everything around us and the things that we experience in our life, you know what they are? They're ultrasounds. They're ultrasounds, they're symbols, small symbols of how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. I mean, you know, it's baseball season. I know you're excited as I am, right? And, and when you're in sports or football, whatever it is, the, the whole idea of sports and getting excited about sports shows what? That we're made for worship. It's an ultrasound. It's a symbol that we're made for something bigger and greater than what we are. And we want to worship and celebrate and get behind and get excited about something greater than us. It's an ultrasound, right? And, and, and we were just talking about this as a family last night because my son has a friend who, who, who uses horoscopes. And we were just talking about how horoscopes are an ultrasound of our real desire for wanting something bigger and greater than ourselves, something to direct our lives by. And so we, we stop short with the person of God and we end up oftentimes going to these kind of figments. But, but all, of these, all of these things are just ultrasounds of the real thing. And the symbols of our culture are just ultrasounds of the real thing. And the preacher, author, writer of Hebrews wants to pull out of the shadows of the ultrasound of the Old Testament the fulfillment of Christ, the real birth of Jesus and how everything is fulfilled in Christ. And he wants to call us out of our cultural things. We're not Hellenistic, but we're Western. And our Western culture has certain symbols and, and cultural items that we hold to together. And you know what they are? They're just symbols of a greater reality. They're, everything in our life is driving us to something better, deeper, richer. And that's Jesus. And that's the point of this preacher. Okay, listen to this quote. I think this really helps and gets to it. This is by Robert Murray McChaney. He says this, when you are reading a book in a dark room and you come to a difficult part, you take it to a window to get more light. So take your Bibles to Christ. That is what the preacher of Hebrews is doing. These difficult things of the Old Testament that just didn't seem to make sense. Why are they there? They're weird. Some parts of the Old Testament are just like, I don't know why. Why is that there? We can't have bacon, can't eat shellfish. I mean, that one's fine, but can't eat bacon, right? Why? Why are those things there? The kind of odd things of the Old Testament, how do we make sense of them? And the author, the preacher would say, we only make sense of them in Christ. Our desires, aspirations, our cultural symbols, our roots are all come to fulfillment and reality in Christ. So here's where it starts. Let's start. Verse one, long ago, 
at many times and in many ways. There's some Star Wars fans who are like, where's this going? All right, long ago in a galaxy far away, God spoke, right? Long ago, many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Here's what the, here's what the preacher's doing. He's reaching to their past. He's reaching to their Jewish roots. He's like, God has been speaking. God spoke. That is an amazing That's an amazing thought. Just think for a second. We rebelled against God. We ran from God. We decided we didn't want God. And we did that in our first parents, Adam and Eve. And then we've done that every day of our own lives. That we've decided we don't want God in one way or another. And yet, what is the good, gracious God done? He speaks. He reveals. He came walking through the Garden of Eden, calling out, Adam, he speaks, he reveals himself. That's incredible. We just finished a series where God is self-existent, self-sufficient, transcendent, all-powerful, all-knowing, and that God has revealed himself. That's amazing. In the Old Testament, God has been speaking. Now, in the Old Testament, it's through dreams, or you remember the burning bush, and you remember Moses, and or you or you might remember the the great deeds, these events of like Daniel in the lion's den, or David and his mighty men, or David and Goliath, or Noah, or these moments that God was speaking, or even from the commandments in Exodus chapter twenty, the Ten Commandments, and and then the greater laws that God has spoken, or the stories, or the poems, or the songs, or the psalms, or even the very theophanies, the the where where Jesus, a pre-incarnate Christ, comes and meets with people, like with Abraham, and uh, in that story, that God has been speaking the whole time. That's grace. We have a, from the very beginning, it's grace that God would speak to us at all. But here's the problem. What does it say? Many times and in many ways. At, at many different times, God spoke. Sporadically, God spoke. We have this idea in the Old Testament that God was always speaking and people are talking, right? It wasn't like that. Sometimes hundreds of years went between times in which God revealed himself. God spoke. So it was sporadic, and then it was fragmented. It was fragmented. It was many different ways. It wasn't one way. It wasn't one specific way, and it and it was hard to always know if it was God or not because it was coming through a different way. So it was sporadic and fragmented. God was speaking, and people were trying to make sense of it. And sometimes you look in the Old Testament, you're like, "Why is that there?" McKenna and I, we listen to the Bible on the way to, to dropping her off at school every day. And this last week, we're listening to the part in Leviticus where it's like if a man has a boil and the boil oozes on the bed, then he's unclean and the bed's unclean and burn the house down, you know, like that, which I'm fine with, you know. <laughs> you got an oozing boil, I'm burning that house down. And, uh, and it's like we're talking, it's like such a weird part of the Bible. Like, why is that there? And you know what? It's an ultrasound. It's a, it's a, it's a shadow of God's revealing work that ultimately gets fulfilled in Jesus. But it doesn't make sense. And it's hard to understand. And it's weird. Fragmented. Sporadic. God spoke. But then look at the contrast. Right here in the beginning. It just hits us right in the face. But in these last days. Meaning since the resurrection of Jesus. Till now. Just before 70 AD. The preacher says. In these last days. He has spoken to us by his son. And this is incredible because what it what it's pointing to is that God formally, long ago in many ways, sporadically and fragmented, God spoke and it was disconnected. But now he has spoken, completed, 
fulfilled, done by Jesus. That, that, that the speaking is done. Now, being complete, this is a completed tense. Past completed. I mean, it, I mean it's done. God has completely spoken. Now, that doesn't mean it's exhausted. It doesn't mean that God has said everything possible. What it means is that God has spoken everything necessary. That anything that we need to know about who God is and what God's doing in the world, it is coming through the message of his son. That's incredible. Let me say it a different way. It means this, that if God would say anything to us, if you'd go, God, give me a word, give me understanding, do you know what God would say? He would say, Jesus. That if God could say anything to us this morning, he would give his, his son, he would say, Jesus, everything I want you to know about me, I've spoken in Jesus, everything you need to know about reality and salvation and, and repentance and righteousness and life with God, it's all been spoken by Jesus. I just, I would say, God should say Jesus to you. It's amazing. That's how the whole book starts. That's what God wants to say to you this morning. You know, I know preachers do that like, if you could just hear, remember one thing that I say. I, I never use that phrase because I want you to remember the whole thing. But in this case, it's actually true. I want you to walk out of here and go, if God could say anything, anything to me, he would just say Jesus. And if I'm like, God, I'm struggling. I need some, some light. I need some understanding. Give me some understanding, you know. And, and, he, we, and, and God just goes, Jesus. God, I'm doubting, Jesus. God, I'm struggling, Jesus. God, I'm suffering, Jesus. The problem is, is we are not always satisfied with that, are we? And if we've been in the church for a while, we're kind of bored with the idea of Jesus. And if we're honest, we're like, God, I want something more than that. And we look back at the Old Testament with jealousy. We're like, how come God doesn't speak to me like he spoke to Daniel or David or Abraham or Moses or Aaron or the people or from the mountain? How come God doesn't do that? We even had a question last week at our Q&A is, does God no longer speak like that? Is, are those things no longer relevant? And, and part of it is we really want that, don't we? We really want like God to reveal some things to us. And we're like, God, if I could just know how all of this makes sense, then I'll trust in you. And God goes, no, 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 Jesus now trust in me. It's incredible. We get jealous, envious, discontent. There's this, great, there's this great dialogue that Spurgeon has with a member of his church one day who came up and said, Charles or, you know, Pastor Spurgeon or whatever, I don't know what he called him, but he said, every week you, you preach the same message about Jesus. When are you going to teach something more? And Spurgeon essentially said something to the effect of, when you start living out the completeness of the gospel, then we'll move on. And it's like we never, move, we never move past the gospel. We always need Jesus. And the author of Hebrews reminds us that this is the very message of God, that we need to embrace the fullness of this message. And that becomes our question this morning to look at the five things that are said about Jesus. Because the question is, why should we listen? Why should we care? What, what is the message that God wants to speak to us? Now, if you look here, it says, by his son. Now, this is significant because it doesn't say, it doesn't say now God has spoken through the words of Jesus. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say now God, God has spoken through what his son has spoken. It doesn't say that. It says 
God has spoken by his son. Now it includes his word, but it's the very being of Jesus that God is speaking, which means that Jesus is the messenger of God's word, but Jesus is also the very message of God. And, that, and that's the whole point in the beginning. These next little five things invites us to think about Jesus in a whole new way because I think like the Hellenistic Jews of Italy, we have the same problem. Our understanding of Jesus is not big enough. We get bored because we don't really know and we don't really understand. And we begin to freak out in our everyday life because we don't believe in a Jesus that's greater than those things. So we need to have a very big Jesus, a very robust understanding of what the message of God is through his son or by his son, Jesus. Jesus is saying something by what he has done and and who he is. Now there's maybe eight things in this next couple verses that we can point to. I'm going to condense them into five things. Now this is one of the richest Christological passages in all of the Bible. There are more things condensed in a couple verses spoken about Jesus than you will find anywhere else in the whole Bible. The author, the preacher of Hebrews, he loved Jesus like crazy and he wanted everybody to be so passionate about Jesus, to understand this relationship that we have with Jesus, that he's more than just a guy who comes into our lives and saves us from some sins, but he is so much bigger than any of that. It includes those things, but it's bigger. So the question is, what is the message of Jesus to us? Number one, he has spoken to us by his son. Here goes, whom, here's one, he appointed the heir of all things. The word heir here means one who receives their allotted possession by right of being a son. The point is that Jesus ends up getting everything from God in the end of this age. That everything that exists, look at heir of all things. We'll do that thing where it's like, what, what does all things mean in the Greek? All things, everything, the totality of things, right? And who, who does it belong to? It belongs to Jesus. We, this isn't the only place we see this, but I'll, I'll, I'll connect it with the next thing. What does it say? He whom he's appointed the heir of all things through whom he created the world. What's the logic? The logic is, Everything is given to Jesus in the end because everything was Jesus in the beginning. That's the point, that Jesus created everything. We looked at John 1, not even just last week in one of our questions. There was not anything that was made without Jesus, right? Everything was made that was made because Jesus made all things. He was the creative mover behind God speaking creation into being. And the point is, is, As the creator, everything belonged to him in the beginning anyway, which then makes this logical sense that in the end, everything will be given to him also. And I'm getting this because it's not the only place in the scripture that talks about this. Colossians 1.16, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. Meaning whatever realm exists, Jesus was the creator, which also means he had to be preeminent or before the very creation, which is another aspect of his deity. In heaven and earth, God, Jesus created it all. Visible and invisible, right? Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created, here it is, through him and for him. Which means Jesus is like, cow, that's for me. Because one day, I'm going to eat that sucker, right? 
Jesus is like creation, garden, world, planet, Pluto, planet, moon, doesn't matter, it's mine. I'll call it what I want. We'll find out one day. Jesus is the heir of all things. Why? Because he created all things. And there's not anything that exists that God did not create through Jesus. Now, there's a couple implications here. One, first implication is, if he owns everything, he therefore has at his disposal the ability to fulfill every one of his promises. Do you know why, we'll, and why we are able to have eternity forever? Because Jesus owns eternity. Because Jesus owns the life after this life. How do you know that, that, that because you believe in Jesus, you will get the new heaven and earth? It's because Jesus, the one you trust, owns the new heaven and earth. So it's at his disposal. Listen to how Piper says it. If he says, Jesus, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth, then he can make good on that promise because he will own the earth and have it under his control. If he says, nothing in all creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, he can make good on that promise because he will own all of creation and have it under control. If he says, there shall no longer be death or mourning or crying or pain anymore, he can make good on that promise because he will own life and death and rule unhindered over all that causes pain and crying. He'll own it all. Therefore, we can trust that he will give us the things that he promises. And then the second implication, and maybe the deeper implication of the pastor of the book of Hebrews, is if Jesus is going to own it all, why would we not give him all of it now? See, the reality is not only does Jesus own all of creation, but you know that you're part of creation. And that when God, when, when you were made, thought about, Long before you were born, but thought about before the very, before all of creation, God thought of you and knew you. For many of us, set us apart for himself. Why? Because we belong to him. We don't belong to ourselves. That's the very implication here. Nobody belongs to themselves. You don't own yourself. Jesus owns you. He could call you to himself, and, 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 and we can only obey that or we rebel against that, but in the end, we all surrender to that. There will not come a, there's not a person on this planet who will not surrender back to Jesus who owns us, that we are part of the inheritance of God that is handed over to Christ in the end. So then, therefore, what's the message? The message of Jesus in this is that, we ought to give him what is already his, our praise, our stuff, and our very heart. It's already his. And many of us are trying to own ourselves. You have someone. You are, you are an inheritance for God himself. We are, out of all things that are God's, we are his greatest inheritance. And we know that because we're the only part of creation he died for. So we belong to him. That's radical. Secondly, it says, he is the radiance of the glory of God. Love this one, radiance. Let, let's get something straight about, about what the preacher means here. The preacher means that Jesus is not reflecting, but radiating. And here's, here's the big difference. Some of us have a view of Jesus that Jesus is the mere representation of God or, or the mere reflection of God and not the very source of the light of God. 
He's radiating. The word here um, is explicitly the source of the light in himself, the sun. So Jesus isn't the moon just reflecting the light of God on the world or to us. He himself is radiating the light. Jesus is the source of the light. He's bright. He's blinding. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. There it is, the radiance of the glory of God. 2 Corinthians says, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus. Which means it's the face of Jesus. As we see the face of Jesus, we see everything in light of the face of Jesus. What's the message? The message is we can only see things as they really are by the light of Christ. We only see things as they really are by the light of Christ. And and if we don't see the brightness, the brilliance of Jesus Christ, then we get consumed by the waves like Peter did while he was walking on the water. See, Peter sank because he stopped looking at the face of Christ and began looking at the waves around him. He began to doubt whether or not Christ would keep him above the water. Right before this in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, we're told this, in the case of the God, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The message is we only see reality in the, in the light of the glory of the face of Jesus. And if we don't have the light of the glory of the face of Jesus, we don't see reality. We see our fears. We see other things that we think are stronger than God. We see our doubts and our concerns, and they rise up. And know this, that there is a great enemy. And what's the work of the enemy? The work of the enemy is not to haunt you and jump out of your closet at night. That's not the work of the enemy. That's easily defeatable. The work of the enemy is to blind the mind so we can't see that Jesus is light and brilliant and good and beautiful. We get blinded by the work of the enemy so that we no longer see our reality, our suffering, our hardship, our life through the light of the glory of the face of Jesus. We have an enemy who diminishes the beauty of Jesus at every turn so that you will turn to someone else or something else that you think is greater than Jesus. That's the message. And the enemy is relentlessly working to keep us from seeing the light of God's love in the face of Jesus. Three, uh, this phrase is really great. The exact imprint of his nature. What's amazing about this little phrase is it's the only time in all of the Bible that Jesus has talked about like this. It's the only time in all of the Bible that this little phrase is put together. It's the only time that we have this idea. And and what it tells us is that every distinguishable mark of the Father is seen in the nature of the Son. You know how like, uh, you know, if if you have children, you'll see yourself in them. If you have siblings, you'll see yourself in them. If you've had a dog for a long time, you'll see yourself in it. Uh, Owners and dogs begin to look alike, right? Uh, Mine's hairy, so I'm scared. And uh, anyway... But you begin to see yourself, and you see these, even if, you're, even if you look at your kids, like, there's a, like my kids, when they were born, I'm like, oh my gosh, that looks exactly like I looked as a baby. And even if we have the same image, 
our personalities are quite different, right? Even if your, your brother or your sister or a family member or one of your own kids looks like you, they don't act like you. They're not totally like you. And here, what we have here is the exact imprint of his nature is we're not talking about the outward appearance of Jesus. We're talking about the very attributes that we just spent six weeks in studying. We're talking that, that Jesus himself is the imprint of God's very nature. Now, where's this coming from? Remember I mentioned that Alexandria was the hub, the educational hub, and, uh, and there was a teacher there, Philo, uh, and, and Philo would talk about God, and he, he had this thing, and I think Apollos, who's from Alexandria, probably studied in the school of thought and, uh, and from the school of Philo, and I think puts these things together because of this. Philo was once quoted as saying this, God's nature is such that nothing and presumably no one can be said to be a representation of his nature. That's quote. Which that, that was... The, the philosophical idea of the age. God is simple and unique, Philo would say, where there is nothing else that could be like God. God would be singular in that sense. There's no place for a Trinitarian God. There's no place for a son who shares the exact imprint of his nature. But then Apollos comes along and goes, no, 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 that's, that's just an ultrasound. In fact, Apollos, or this preacher, calls Jesus... What the, what the school of thought of the day said was an impossible paradox, right? Nothing else can be like God. And Apollos goes, no, 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 Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. Here's what's the message. The message is this. We easily get behind the idea that Jesus is, is God-like. That Jesus is like the Father. And we can point to places where you see that the harder turn, and sometimes we miss is because we divide the two, is that we forget that God is Christ-like. And what that helps us do is it helps us to keep the Old Testament and the New Testament from different compartments in our faith. And it helps us to keep the, the parts of the Trinity um, from being separate in the way that we relate to God. And that the God of the Old Testament and is the same God of the New Testament, that we don't have this kind of kind of white-bearded, uh, angry God of the Old Testament and this kind of like, you know, uh, like hippie vegan eating Jesus of the New Testament. And we're trying to make sense of the two. He's the same God. And Jesus is God-like. But if you really want to know God, God is Jesus-like, Christ-like, the exact imprint of their nature. Now, I'm just not making that up. Listen to Matthew 11. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you. This is a prayer. Jesus is praying, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, Hebrews 1, 3, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. No one knows the exact imprint of his nature. Fourthly, and we could spend a sermon in each one of these. I mean, this is like a, a quick flyby. Then it says this, two more. He says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's one of my favorite statements about Jesus in all the Bible. It's one of my favorite statements about Jesus in the whole Bible because it shows that I'm, I'm utterly more dependent upon Jesus than I realize. 
that my very existence is dependent upon the word of Jesus' power to keep me existing. That the reason my molecules do not just fly apart and, and, and poof away into oblivion is because Jesus, from the word of his power, is saying, hold together, be together. The reason why our planet isn't in chaos and going to spin out of control and as if God has no power is because Jesus is keeping all things into existence by the word of his power. Not only does Jesus have the imprint of God's nature, but in here he has the very power of God as well. From whom all things, listen to 1 Corinthians, yet for us is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom all things exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. Do you hear that? This is amazing. I mean, it just blows up our view of Jesus. So if we walk in here and we're like, Jesus is just my spiritual savior. He just saves me from my sins. But I go to other things for other reasons. We, don't, we have no idea how utterly dependent we are of Jesus. Right now, we exist because Jesus says exist. We will forever exist because Jesus says, exist. We realize none of us exist upon ourselves. None of us, again, we don't own ourselves. We are an heir to Christ. He gets us, but we exist because Jesus says, exist. And we will exist for eternity because of the word of his power will maintain our existence. And if he decided that we don't exist, we don't exist. And he's done us no wrong because we're his. That's how crazy Jesus is. The great part about it is I don't know if, I know many of you have experienced great anxiety in your life. I've experienced great anxiety in my life. Life-altering anxiety years. And this was one of the passages that when I was walking through seminary, afraid, so fearful, and I made all kinds of crazy life decisions because of the fear that I had. This scripture was one of the scriptures that God used through different means from counselors to friends to bring a kind of healing, never gone, but to bring a healing to this deep anxiety. Why? Because all things are bound to his word and power. Now, for, for reasons I can't even get into of things that had happened in my family life, I just was so fearful that my heart was just going to stop. I stopped walking upstairs. I was just so full of fear. And, and what I processed in Hebrews one night was that my heart doesn't beat or not beat randomly. It beats or not beats on the word of Jesus' power. Which means it will not be my heart that ends my life. It'll be the goodness of Jesus doing good to me in my life. That he's greater than my heart. Therefore, greater than my anxiety. That's how practical this little phrase that he upholds the whole universe by his power. And lastly, because I've got to get out of here. Lastly, I'm going to put these two together. They, should, they could be two. I'm going to make them one. After making purification for sin, he sat down. Yeah, yes and amen. Why? 
Why is that significant? Because for the Jews, for their Old Testament roots, the priest never sat down. The priest was like a stay-at-home mom, right? Always moving, always working, never sitting down. Lunch, diapers, the whole thing. That was the priest. Why? Because people kept sinning. So the priest would offer purification, offerings, rams, goats, birds, the whole thing. And then what would happen? By the time they got through the last person in the camp, they would have to start all over because by then the first guy sinned again, right? And it was just like, they would just go. And there, you can go back and you can read about the priest. And they would like, there, there was these kind of short-term terms, like work schedules, where you would work really hard for three or four days, right? You'd work like four twelves or something like that. And because you would work so hard and then you wouldn't have to work for another two or three weeks. It was that difficult. You would stay up all hours because people kept sinning, including yourself. So then when you get to the book of Hebrews and right from the beginning, it's like after making purification for sin, one, Jesus is our purification. Jesus is our sacrifice. He sat down. He's the first priest to pull up a lazy boy and crack a drink. He's done. Never before this has a priest ever sat down, but never could a priest sit down because the job was never done. But when Jesus, who was perfect, made a purification for our sin, he sat down. Now, here's what's amazing. We are looking and we worship a Savior who is sitting down while we're trying to work real hard to please him. We have a Jesus who is sitting, but we're standing and running around like chickens with our head cut off, trying to make sense and get our lives right and saved. What's the message? The message is this. God's like, I have one word for you, Jesus. Why are you working to be saved and to find favor in my eyes when Jesus is sitting? We rest in the rest of Jesus. What does the preacher of Hebrews want you to know? He goes, if you're ever worried that you're unsavable, that your sin has gone too far, that God does not love you anymore. Look to heaven. Is Jesus scurrying around? Is he struggling to save you? I often think like if you're on an airplane, don't, don't worry about the turbulence, just look at the flight attendants. If the flight attendants are panicking, it's time to panic. Right? Scream, whatever. Throw yourself in one of the upper bins. Do whatever you want to do, right? This is your last moment, right? Like if, if, they're, if they're anxious and screwing around, then you know something's wrong. But in your faith, things get bumpy. Look to Jesus. Is Jesus running around? Oh, no. Here's what we're told. After making purifications of sin, it's done. Jesus has sat down. The priest is no longer working. And the, uh, and the sacrifices are no longer open. And when we come back, we're like, I sinned again. He's like, covered. <laughs> right on. Rejoice. Go back to your family. Tell them what I've done for you. Don't worry. I'm done. I'm sitting down. There, there's nothing more I have to do. So what's the whole point? The whole point is that Jesus is a better message. See, the Hellenistic Jews of 60 AD, they had their past, they had their culture, and they had their comfort in mind. Jesus, the preacher comes along and goes, it doesn't matter your past. 
Jesus is a better message. It doesn't matter how stuck you feel by the family you grew up in, Jesus is a better message. It doesn't matter how much addiction has been a part of your life, Jesus is a better message. That you aren't your past because Jesus is a better message. And for our culture, whatever the Hellenistic culture was telling them about the arts and philosophy and affluence and politics and the symbols of meaning and significance that every culture has, our culture has meaning of significance. From money to affluence to security, Jesus is a better message. And lastly, this church and the people seeking after Jesus, trying to make sense of all this, were, were suffering or facing the potential of great suffering if they were to receive the message of God through Jesus. And the preacher of Hebrews says, Jesus is a better message than your comfort. We love the message of our comfort. Be comfortable, don't hurt, don't struggle, don't be weak, don't feel suffering. Whatever you can do to get out of discomfort, go, go to your phone, go to Netflix, go to another relationship, go to another church, go find another job, find another dream, whatever it is, get into a comfortable place. And it comes along and goes, no, no, no. In fact, Jesus is such a message that you would be willing to embrace discomfort or suffering for the sake of the goodness of Jesus, that Jesus is a better comfort. This is the journey that we're going on. And it starts with realizing that this Jesus is bigger and greater and more beautiful than we could ever imagine. And he is better. But to receive the message of God is to receive the son of God. You can't, you can't separate those. Some people want God without Jesus. You don't get it. Because it's only through Jesus you see God. And so this morning, you are invited not only to receive a message of God, you are invited to receive the messenger of the exact imprint of the nature of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thanks for this morning and for the sermon, for the start of this book. I love this book. And you love this book because you love your son and it makes much of your son. And I pray, God, that you would stir us to deep affection, affection that we have not experienced in years for some of us, that you would break the hardness of our heart away and, and, and remind us of the invitation that we have to the, to the finished work of the purification of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. God, we are working hard to find meaning and significance and purpose and comfort. Oh, God, make Jesus look better than any of that. Make him look so good to us right now that all we want to do is worship him, give our life to him, and give him ourselves because we already belong to him. We pray in your name. Amen.